Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. In 2003, the World Health Organization developed the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which declares all people must be protected from exposure to environmental tobacco smoke. Its impact was monumental as institutions the world over moved quickly to ban combustible tobacco products. But for some institutions, banning tobacco products is a serious challenge, and the risk could not be greater than when a prison system decides to go smoke-free. Joining us today to talk about the smoke-free policy implemented by the Scottish Prison Service and the challenges and opportunities for tobacco harm reduction in prison is Michael Stoney, Governor of HMP Barlini, Scotland's largest male prison. Mick, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, I don't want to bury the lead, so let me ask you off the top, is it true that prisoners in Scotland have access to free e-cigarettes? No, it's not true. Um, we did, in the transition, the changeover between smoking uh, tobacco and moving towards vape, we did offer free uh, equipment and vape pods for a period to aid that transition. But now we're in business as usual mode. And that's the prisoners can can vape, but they have to pay? Yes. Still, that's amazing. So before we get into the details, tell us about HMP Barlini, its history and the community it serves. Well, it's Glasgow's prison. Uh, it's very highly connected, both passionately and psychologically, strangely, to the city. Um, it's pretty iconic and referenced in all kind of areas of drama, books and everything. So it's, it's part of Scottish culture. Uh, it's a 140-year-old prison. It holds somewhere between 1,200 and 1,400 to 1,500 people on average from all sentence ranges, from remand through to life sentence prisoners, all adult male. Now, what's the philosophy behind the time there? As I understand it, it's really focused on the community? Yeah, we're, we're looking to try and, as much as possible, you transition people back into the community. We're looking to build resources in people. We're looking to help. We probably base it on a salutogenic model of trying to create good health in people. And by that, we mean in the broadest sense, all the stressors that life has thrown upon us. A lot of our guys, through being involved in uh, adverse childhood events, a lot of abuse, a lot of trauma that they've suffered. Almost their drug use is often self-medication. So what we're trying to do is establish connections with them in the community, with their own family or other supports, but also while they're in prison in custody with us, is to allow them the opportunity to build resources within themselves to cope with what we would consider as normal life stressors, paying the bills, coping with a tenancy, trying to seek employment eventually, trying to stabilise themselves, move away from kind of self-medicating with illicit substances or other harmful substances such as alcohol, uh, and trying to just move into what we'd, we would consider, I suppose, a productive citizen. Now, Mick, you've played a central role in developing health-centered programs within the SPS. Tell us about that. We've arranged, we've arranged programs that specifically focus on harm reduction through uh, smoke cessation programs, replacement nicotine patches, etc., a lot of different types of uh, drug recovery programs, both therapeutic and clinical. So in terms of clinical supports, we've got our normal uh, opiate replacement treatment programs, such as methadone. 
We've also got different drugs we use in terms of Espronor or Duvidal, which is a monthly injection, which is recent for us. It's quite costly in terms of a treatment option. However, it has a great impact operationally due to the fact that rather than queuing for methadone every day, an individual has one injection a month of Duvidal. And that that's allowed them to kind of, they probably have a greater deal of clarity about their lives rather and they don't have the stigma attached to being in a methadone queue and being seen as a drug user or a, a junkie, as they would call it over here. And that's probably helped them start to connect into proper recovery. So they attend uh, peer-led initiatives. Or we have a lot of recovery cafes running, as we call them. Very much peer-led initiatives, and they've been very successful. And they also push each other. They're facilitated by a cha- local charity. But we, we, we give them potentially free reign in the prison to adapt and adopt their programme as they see fit. So they start providing lots of through care supports, lots of employment opportunities. So we're trying to kind of work through synergy with lots of things at the moment. So let me ask you, when did the prison system go smoke-free? It was November, St Andrew's Day, so the 30th of uh, November 2018. So it's actually been quite recent. Yeah, in the last four years, when you take, when we subtract the COVID years, which everybody feels are relatively lost years, it does still feel relatively recent, yeah. So what percentage of prisoners smoked before the implementation? On all of the studies we conducted, it was always well above 80%, would say they, they smoked tobacco products, yeah. Now, smoking, uh, at least in my mind, uh, I guess just from watching movies, you know, really shows that smoking is ingrained in prison culture, is it not? Yeah, it was It was always uh, used as a currency, if you like, as well in prisons. Um, so, and it was always a fundamental part of prison life in terms of, I suppose, it's coping mechanisms as well. People turn to whatever, I'm, being a non-smoker, I don't really have a connection to what it gave you, but people obviously feel it was a crutch they could lean on when they were in prison at stressful times. Now, previously in the past, I mean, of course, you know, smoking, it was in the 1990s that the pressure really started getting put on institutions uh, with regard to smoking. So this, this couldn't, you know, 2018, that's a long ways away from when the first yeah. pressure started. Yeah. So, you know, what happened, what were the discussions like uh, with inside the system as you were looking at going smoke-free, even say back in the early 2000s? Early 2000s, we moved somewhere mid-2000 toward really restricting the places where people could smoke. So staff were banned from smoking and prisoners were only allowed to smoke in their cell or out in an exercise yard out in open air. So there was only two places in that prison they could smoke from mid-2000s onwards. So there was, I suppose at that time, when there wasn't such focus on replacement therapies or even the technology that's in vapes. There weren't many options. I suppose that was probably the best solution for the time. Yeah, I guess not many people think about it, but, uh, you know, prison officers, the staff, for the longest time, they smoke too, and they're part of the whole issue. Yes, they were, I remember as an officer, the, the offices weren't very nice places to be on the prison landings at times when staff were smoking, so you would you would get... Outside in the land for fresh air at times, lots of people. So let me ask you, what, if any, were the 
operational difficulties in going smoke-free? I think they were all <clears throat> assumed that this would be a very difficult step for us. It would be um, something that would cause great angst and you could have um, some, as we said, operational issues to deal with, people prisoner unrest. These were all potentials that we had to mitigate risk for. So the, the, the process we undertook at the time was about, we set the date pretty early, but a year out we started to build up both our communication strategy and the alternatives, the resources. NHS as a partner organisation, the National Health Service, they started to build up their resources as well, focus on harm reduction, nicotine replacement treatments, lots of uh, awareness sessions, smoking cessation sessions, lots of peer-led initiatives as well in terms of them joining in sessions. I think probably the greatest element was just constant communication to the prisoner population. This is happening, there's a the date, here's what we do. And each stage we reached certain milestones. So I think, for example, in uh, February of 2018, we, we introduced the kind of single-use e-cigarettes into canteen for purchase. And that was to give people an opportunity to maybe attempt and try uh, an alternative to tobacco. Um, throughout that time. So it wasn't the multi-use vapes, the kind of battery charged versions of, as we see where you put pods in, it was just the single-use ones. Um, they weren't overly popular at all. A, people had to pay for them. They were relatively expensive. You could still purchase tobacco, which was the preferred drug uh, of choice, if you like. And in terms of the nicotine replacement processes from uh, NHS, there was a couple of options and some were more palatable than others with patches or gum. So people did, we started to ramp up the options, but also ramp up, I suppose, the information we were providing to people. So well in advance, they knew it was happening and it gave a long time to get them tuned in to probably this was an event that was going to take place. So I felt that kind of uh, communication worked really well for us. Yeah, in the end, it, it just, you run right up to the wall, I think, of yeah. any of these kinds of bands. If you're and a, and a couple of other elements on the way, so we we did we weren't sure if we were going to introduce these vaping devices, and we weren't we were concerned about potential implications of them. They weren't tested. Could they start setting fires everywhere? Would they be the USB chargers would be problems with them? So there was a whole range of uh, issues we had to work through and assure ourselves and give ourselves comfort that we weren't creating more problems. But in the late August and September of that year, we then offered the vapes for free to all that were in custody at the time. And for those that were going to be in custody throughout that period, new ones coming in to just probably a month or two post towards into the new year. So live in November, late November, and then to December, January, it was free. And then we, we moved into a six months subsidization process where we reduced, we increased the cost, sorry, of the vape itself and increased the cost of the pods over a period until we reached the target date then was April 2019 to be business as normal. You pay the full price for the vape, you pay the full price for the pods. So it gave them a kind of time frame that they were seeing that we were attempting to support them. And it wasn't that, we were just saying, cutting people off and then moving on. The other element was 
a fortnight's kind of amnesty on if we found people with tobacco products after the date. We weren't taking them through the judicial processes we would have in the prison. There was no punishment award for it, so people was just a, it was a kind of amnesty. If we find stuff, we take it off you, but there's no further punishment to that. That helped as well, because people, Scottish people in particular, being chancers, decided they would they would hang on to things, they would stockpile and they would hide stuff. So it became a game for the first few weeks. But uh, nothing we'd say adversarial. It was more of a, a kind of try and catch as if you can thing. Uh, and we invariably did. When you look at the entire population of smokers, um, I guess just in your prison, or if you can say with, yeah. within the system overall, how many of them moved over to nicotine vaping products? Well, I would say all. All, and I think it's because it maybe was free to start with. They all kind of made the switch and attempted, they were getting free stuff. So again, being Scottish, we like free stuff. Um, so that maybe helped. And it gave people, because there was no other alternative, so we'd cease selling tobacco products probably, I think, round about the 20th of November or earlier. So they get, they get one kind of purchase just the week before, and that was it. It was over then. And so they had no alternative. So they had, this gave them their least worst option, I suppose, not the best option, the least worst. And as that least worst became the norm quite quickly, um, things went remarkably smoothly. Are there any repercussions uh, for, you know, a prisoner or prison staff if they get caught smoking now? Now there would be, yes. The, there's an internal uh, adjudication process in prisons where they would lose privileges if they're caught disobeying orders or doing something against prison rules. So that could be loss of TV for two weeks. It could be a reduction in wages or no wages. It could be anything in terms of access to uh, physical training or whatever it may be. So there's, there are a range of things. So any, And a member of staff would be what we describe as a discipline code. They would be under investigation as a code of conduct issue. Um, if they were caught nowadays bringing introducing tobacco products. Now, I understand that, say, pre-e-cigarettes even being an option, um, potential bans of tobacco products in prison could spark, you know, a black market. Was that a concern with this? And did having the vaping products alleviate that concern? As, yeah, I think it, it probably, because of everybody getting things for free right away, including the vaping pods the level, what it did was reduce demand right away. So I think if we didn't have that uh, as an option, we would have struggled in terms of people trying to illicitly introduce tobacco products on the black market. And we haven't seen many at all. That's now four years hence, and we've hardly seen any attempts to introduce tobacco products, few and far between. It happens, but it's very rare. Now that sounds like the program is a success, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think that aligned to smoking cessation and people probably. I, I mean, we don't have any evidence to, to support claims that they maintain tobacco-free existence on release, but we would imagine anecdotally people would probably stick to vapes, but we don't have the figures of it because there, there was lots of discussion about feeling healthier and feeling better about themselves. And we, we really pushed on the health promotion aspect as well in prison, um, introducing walking clubs and other things for people to do. 
we also I think the with a study from the University of Stirling who helped us throughout the whole process in terms of uh, taking air samples. So what they've seen is they took an air samples of around the prison on the 28th of November and then again on the 3rd of November over the course of the five days and they noticed an 80% reduction in the air particulates uh, in terms of, so it was broadly equivalent to been out in open air in Scotland in terms of the air that was in the prison, which is a remarkable change for the health of the staff, not having to breathe in um, smoking fumes. How did you come to then decide that nicotine vaping products were acceptable? I think for us, it was the best of the alternative options for people who would make conscious choices. So what we have always believed in Scotland in terms of our approaches, we believed in the responsible individual that people will make their own choices. And so if we can lead a person towards a less harmful choice, it's a positive step. So we we always felt the evidence we had at the time was this was definitely unequivocally a less harmful choice than tobacco products, not just for the prison population, but, but more importantly at the time for our staff. So we are, were having staff breathing in secondhand smoke, pressure from our prison unions, the staff representation, about this is an occupational hazard. Um, and the risk assessments and safe distance the work don't quite uh, cut it. They don't meet a reasonable standard. So in terms of risk mitigation, it was a kind of no-brainer for us. Um, I think if we... and align that to the operational, potential or operational issues. This was the one that was far more palatable for everyone than any other option. And you also had a lot of staff who were vapors as well, who would probably talk about positive benefits in their lifestyle, that their grandkids don't come into the house and the house is smelling the smoking things and not putting others at risk. So there was lots of staff who were kind of proponents of that as well. Um, so, as I say, as a non-smoker, I was probably very objective at the whole process in terms of what was right and what was wrong. But I'm very strong supporter of individuals making their own personal conscious choice of harm. So, in Scotland, we have a strange way about us where we like to self-destruct and harm ourselves. And we've got an extreme nature about us um, culturally. But we, we don't like to harm others so much, but we're not bad at doing it to ourselves. So it's good when you see people make a more health-focused, conscious choice. And I'm not advocating that vapes are the best thing in the world. We are just saying they are better, far better than tobacco. Tell me uh, about the admission process, just briefly. Just give us an idea of somebody coming into the prison and... I would imagine that the smoking issue is pretty much pretty high up on the list. Yeah. When they, they do struggle in the first few days of admission, if people have been smoking outside and particularly in the early days of this, when new admissions come in and didn't quite realize that there was most, no smoking in prisons anymore. Um, Cause despite the stimulant effect of tobacco and cigarettes, they used it as a calming mechanism. It was traditional in prison that if a, if an individual come in who didn't have a lot of funds, if you like, he was a poor soul, there would be a poor box where we would give people some tobacco to get them through the night, first night or two. That option was no longer there. 
So we had to consider alternative options and then, so those that come in in the first phase did get vapes. Those that come in now, what we do is if they've got some funds, we'll give them the vape and then take it off their next uh, when they get funds back in. So they're almost getting advance to to use the vape at the time and if that's what they choose to do on admission. So it kind of calms people down. It, it settles people because people come into prison might not even be there for, for the first time. Still find prison a pretty dehumanising, daunting place. It's still pretty oppressive. You're getting put behind the cell door. You don't know what's happening to you. The, you'll feel a wee bit lost. Feel a, yeah. You'll know yourself and I know whenever we come up against big public sector organisations, we sometimes feel just like a number, the same as a prisoner would come into prison. So you, you kind of don't fully get what they're doing to you at times. Um, so this... That's that first phase of community prison is always a, a risky one for individuals. We potentially get more self-harm from people at that phase. We get more incidents from them in terms of mental health issues. And to stabilise them quickly is useful. So based on your observation of the prison population and being objective because, you, you know, you were not and are not a smoker, do you think e-cigarettes work in helping hardened smokers quit? I think so. I mean, I've had friends who have done it um, and they will vape now and again and sometimes they go to for a period and purchase zero nicotine vape products for, for whatever reason I don't know. I've never necessarily asked. But it's more the psychological aspect of doing something with your hands. They've said that they struggle to give up more than the smoking. So I, I know people who have benefited from it and it does make the prison a healthier place because we're not all breathing in secondhand smoke. So I think um, for us, prison governors, prison leaders, prison managers, uh, and prison staff, it has been an excellent game changer for us in terms of our health. So you've got to think almost by default that it's, it's a game changer for prisoners' health. Even if they're only in six months, it's six months without tobacco. If they're in a couple of years, then it's, it's that whole period of time in prison without tobacco, and they still get a lot of access to uh, smoke cessation processes, to health improvement uh, initiatives as well. Sounds like tobacco harm reduction in action. Mick, I know you're familiar with the Global Forum on Nicotine and its annual conference on safer nicotine products and tobacco harm reduction. GFN is coming up again this June from June 21st to the 24th. Let me ask you, why is an event like GFN important? I think from my experience with it, 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 I suppose it brings messaging. For me, when I read the latest report, the latest publication, the history of um, tobacco and tobacco product, I thought it was a very clear, concise and objective piece that actually, and from my perspective, allowed individuals who are in my care, if they read that piece, they would then be far more informed about the harm and the risks and the, the implications of vaping as opposed to tobacco products and that history. So I, I do think it allows for proper messaging to be given and not, I suppose, the propaganda of any current government in any jurisdiction of what they choose to take forward as a initiative. So it's a bit of, it's a bit of a back to this conscious choice bit for me and giving people the opportunity to make choices in their life. Because regardless of 
what you'll do to people, they'll make their own choice. Um, so I think messaging like that allows people to make an informed choice. And I think GFN does that. And it does bring, I suppose, a consensus of opinion together. And you have to recognise there is adversarial views or other views out there that conflict. And again, but if people can make choices over that, I think for a prison population, they are vulnerable to influence, I would say. So it's very easy for us to influence them to say this is what you should do. But I think people in a modern day are, are not really tuned in to being told what to think or what to do. Even in a prison population, I think with the use of Google, you can transform your knowledge potentially overnight. Yeah. So it's a different world we operate in now. Let me ask you last question, Mick, and that's how does it make you feel to be sending people back into the community after prison as non-smokers? Well, I think it's part of a multiple range of, I suppose, outcomes we would like to see. Healthier in terms of physically, healthier in terms of mentally, better connected back to the community, um, the ability to make good conscious choices, having your rucksack of resources, a range of tools that you can use and skills that you can use, and then hopefully survive or thrive far better than you did before, before you ended up in prison. So I think it's one of a range of things that are a positive outcome um, and anything that leads to better health or good health is positive.